completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You're not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? Welcome, Unbalanced listeners. This is Unbalanced Views of History, a mostly American history podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bradyhoff. I studied history in grad school and then taught it for a few years. During each Unbalanced episode, I read an amazing story from history to my friend, my nemesis, Mike Kajarinos, who is completely <laughs> ignorant. Welcome to the show, Mike. Totally ignorant. <laughs> How, How are you, doing, you my brother? Well, I'm, I'm good, you know. I'm, th- I'm doing... That's awesome. I'm doing well as well. I'm doing well. I um, I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah, little COVID. And uh, it's amazing that. Um, have you gotten your superhero strength yet? I, I haven't gotten any superhero strength. I um, somehow uh, in the process of of staying in bed for like nine days, I threw my back out. So my back's kind of <laughs> my back's kind of killing me today. So I can't quite. It's it's a little embarrassing. I'm like, yeah, I threw up my back laying down, apparently. Oh, my God. It, it That's the one thing, man. When I had COVID, it put me down hard. But when I bounced back, I felt like I felt like a million dollars. I really did. I went the first day that I could. Now, all during my COVID, probably it was a COVID seven to nine, ten days, something like that. Uh, the back pain was the worst. It kept me up for literally two to three days. I couldn't sleep at all. I couldn't get comfortable at all. Mm. Uh, I could not sleep. And then the head fog was really bad. Throat was was kind of sore headache, you know, kind of stiff neckish, fluey feeling, no stomach issues at all. Uh, then the loss of taste was terrifying. I had to look down to see, make sure I was still eating food. I could have been eating mud and I wouldn't have known it. I couldn't taste anything. Sure. You know, it, that was really eerie and strange. I'm very, very glad that came back. Um, In Soviet Union, but, we have only gray paste. It has only yeah, one flavor. That, it, tastes, I, it tastes like gray. It, <laughs> they didn't mind that. In Soviet Union, they didn't mind the loss of taste thing. I did here. All right, that's not um, true. None of that is true. But now, yeah, okay. Now, now listen. Now, here's the thing. During the whole process, I still tried to, because I had, because I'm, I'm stuck inside, obviously. So I still tried to get out and just go for walks, you know, around here. It's, it's the big openness out, out where I'm living. So I'd go for walks. I couldn't get far. I'd get very fatigued, come back, lay back down. But what the day I really rebounded and all the symptoms went away, I went out. I must have ran eight miles and I haven't run that far in years. I felt and I just overall felt like I was just rejuvenated in every way, shape or form. It was a really a truly an amazing feeling once I finally recouped from everything. It was just. And I would say that that's because capitalism grinds you into a fine pulp. And so you actually had a chance to rest and recoup for a few days and COVID <laughs> symptoms, notwithstanding, you got back. It's the first time you've rested in 30 years and you felt fantastic as a result. 
That's right. Now I'm back at the back sure. on the rat race, back on the uh, back on the uh, Treadwheel, treadmill know, of the doom. Treadmill. The treadmill, and they're hanging that almighty diamond out in front, that dollar, and I'm running, running, running on that treadmill chasing. But I'm telling you this time, I'm getting closer. So anyway, we've got we a great have a good story. story uh, but let's start with uh, what's your uh, what's your sunshine this week, buddy? Oh, my sunshine. Clearly unprepared. Oh, my sunshine, obviously, as I just started with a new company. It's an incredible opportunity. Other than this opportunity, yeah. this is my second probably best opportunity that I have going right now. Um, but that one will pay the bills, which is important. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, this one will not yet. This one one day will. This one one day I will. I hope so. And I appreciate all of our loyal downloaders. Uh, but that's that's probably my sunshine because I was going out of my mind. Sure. Or my, I realized during my time off that I'm clearly not yet ready for retirement. <laughs> well, I think if you had, uh, you know, if you had the boat and you were in Aruba, uh, you might have felt different about all the time off. Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. It's all uh, <laughs> uh, a matter of perspective. Sure. I mean, it's a whole different thing when you're having to make uh, pay your bills with no salary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, good. I, uh, I'm gl- I'm excited for you. Although, uh, you know, I hope uh, I hope you don't have to stay there long, and that this uh, this takes off. It's going to be very interesting over time to see which 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 way the balance tilts. Mm. You know. I know right now there's an unbalanced amount of work being done. Sure. sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, uh, that, that is to, uh, to be expected. Uh-huh. Um, and that is, and that's fine. Yeah. So uh, I don't even know if we need to get into my sunshine. It's very clearly that I, uh, that I'm over COVID. So, uh, you know, that's that there's no fun story. I just, uh, you're free of symptoms. Completely. I'm completely free of symptoms. I've been free of symptoms for um for the most part for the past couple of days. I um I've gotten I've been kind of winded as I've done the most minimal things, um which is a little alarming. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm done. Um, <laughs> so good stuff. Good, good, good. Anyway, so who we got tonight? Who do we got? Who's on deck? Who's on deck? So as promised, our story is. Something of a murder mystery. Now, this particular murder murder mystery will be a bit different than your kind of Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes style of whodunit. Mm -hmm. From the beginning, we will know who the victim and who the main suspects are. Okay. Okay. So in this murder mystery, listeners won't really have an opportunity to try and carefully put together uh, well-constructed clues to discover the culprit through deductive reasoning or whatever. In fact, In this murder mystery, we won't even really concern ourselves with whether or not the suspect was or wasn't guilty. Okay. In this story, our focus will be about how people were impacted by the murder mystery at the time. And that's going to be our real story. Uh, Using this murder mystery to tell kind of a larger story about society, about sexuality, about gender, politics, racial attitudes, and anxieties about modernization and class struggle. Um, maybe we're also going to ask why this murder mystery was so important to the people at the time. So much of this larger story is going to be examined in the way that public spaces end up being policed. And we're going to sort of look at the media discourse surrounding the murder mystery. So that's really what we're going to be doing. I know that's a bit of historian speak. 
But so in historian speak, we're going to be using this murder mystery as a lens through which we can observe, observe the changes in time and space that we're looking at. Does that make sense? It does. So, okay. So before we begin, I want to make note of two things. Mm-hmm. I will absolutely unquestionably be mispronouncing a lot of Chinese names in this story. Undoubtedly, I will mispronounce a lot of names. You will offend no one. Trust me. Well, I apologize in advance for any name butchery that I, uh, that I do. I'm doing my best. Um, I will also occasionally use some kind of insensitive uh, racist language when I quote directly from sources. So I'm going to identify all of these quotes every time. It's okay. Tarantino does that all the time. It's cool. That's yeah, that's art. This is not art. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. But anyway, my apologies if any slip through, but every time I use something that's racially insensitive, I just want it to be clear that I am pulling that from a contemporary source. It's not me ever speaking in this way. Okay. And while I don't generally speaking want to edit uh, historical documents. I will edit. There's one word that I will edit out during the course of this. Anyway, I'm still including it, most of this language because I think it's really important to the context of the story. I want you to understand the racism of the time because I think that helps tell the story that I'm trying to tell. Hey, man, you won't offend me, brother. I know. I know. All right. So we're going to cover a lot of ground in this one. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, then. Away we go. So we're going to set the scene. It's June 18th, 1909. It was a beautiful day in Midtown Manhattan. Sunny, 71 degrees, about 22 Celsius for all our listeners outside the U.S. It was the kind of day that made the newfangled invention, the air conditioner, seem superfluous in New York City. On that beautiful day, Sun Leong, owner of a so-called chop suey restaurant at 782 8th Avenue, knocked on the door of a fourth floor apartment above the restaurant just as he had done multiple times each day for nearly a week. Just as those previous days, Leung's knocks went unanswered. But on this day, a terrible smell leached into the air outside the door. So he decided to report the disappearance of that apartment's resident, his cousin, Leon Ling. Sun Leung strolled to the West 47th Street police station amid the flurry of construction noise as workers diligently built the Grand Central Terminal for the rapidly expanding subway system. Leung filed a report, and Officer John Reardon was dispatched to return with him to Leon Ling's apartment. A locksmith unlocked the door, and Reardon opened it. There, in the center of the room, Reardon and Leung saw a large trunk, bound and tied with a thick rope. They managed to untie the rope and open the trunk. When they lifted the lid, the men expected to find Leon Ling's body, but instead they discovered a female corpse stuffed inside with rope around her neck. Reardon contacted Captain Post at the 47th, who came and inspected the scene personally. He then turned the investigation over to Captain Arthur Carey of the Homicide Bureau at the Detective Bureau of the NYPD. By day's end on June 18th, 1909, police officers, detectives, and the coroner had all inspected the crime scene. They had interrogated the building's residents. Police arrested several Chinese men who happened to be at the building when they arrived. The men were Yi Kim, who managed the restaurant, Chin Sung, who lived in the building, and Dong Wing, who lived on Pell Street in Chinatown. Since none of the men could provide any information about the murder, 
they were all eventually released on bail. <laughs> In Leon Ling's apartment, police discovered numerous letters that were written to Ling by various American women. 35 of the letters were signed Elsie. Elsie Siegel was a 19-year-old white woman from Washington Heights. She disappeared on June 9th while on her way to visit her grandmother's house. There were no reports about whether she was wearing a red hood. That is funny. Siegel's family came to the police station, identified the clothes and jewelry (laughs) that was found on the corpse. Okay. It was official. Elsie Siegel was no longer a missing person. She was a murder victim. Elsie Siegel. Poor Elsie Siegel. Poor Elsie. Unbelievable. Interesting. I like it. So the police began to search for the missing Leon Ling, who was now their lead suspect. The police also discovered that Chong Sing, who lived in an adjoining room to Ling, was also missing. So they launched a search for him as well. An adjoining room. He was a roommate, but like the door, he was a roommate, but it was separate. Yes. Yes. Okay. So to be clear, like he's not a neighbor. He is a roommate, but not in the way we might think of it quite today. Okay. Okay. The police quickly sought to establish a motive and to understand how Elsie Siegel ended up in a room rented by a Chinese man. A rumor circulating at the time claimed that she was a Protestant missionary working primarily with the male Chinese immigrant population. Police latched onto this rumor, and it seeped into the press from there, like it did in the New York Herald headline, quote, Girl Missionary Strangled, Body Packed in Trunk, end quote. That was the following day on June 19th. For at least a week, sensationalist headlines splashed the city's newspapers, announcing developments in the Siegel murder investigation. The story spread throughout the country with local newspapers revealing ways this murder impacted local communities. Journalists tended to focus their stories extensively on life in Chinatown. This was hardly the first time that newspaper articles had reported on the so-called, quote, heathen Chinese, end quote. Every New York paper from the New York Times to the more sensationalist New York Journal, New York Tribune, and World all defined life in Chinatown in sordid terms of underground vice, gambling, tong wars, and opium dens. They also covered some activities of the more, quote, respectable, end quote, Chinese immigrants, like Lunar New Year celebrations and missionary-sponsored suppers and picnics, plus, of course, wedding and birth announcements. Nevertheless, Elsie Siegel's murder resonated with people in a different way. And throughout the city and country, people eagerly followed the case looking for answers, especially to questions about the nature of Leon Ling and Elsie Siegel's relationship. Beautiful. Now, as far as the public was concerned, there was no mystery in the murder itself. The story was simple. Leon Ling, a Chinese Sunday school pupil, became infatuated with his white missionary teacher. And he murdered her in a fit of jealousy when he learned that she had affection for another man. Then <laughs> Leon Ling disappeared into thin air. This was what everyone kind of believed. However, for us, the mysteries of motive and guilt remain unsolved. And in all likelihood, they always will. So we come to the question, why was this unsolved murder so important to turn of the century Americans? Why were they so obsessed with the details of this particular case? Well, um... I would love to know what this Elsie Siegel looked like. How old was she? 19. Oh, 19. Does it say anything in description at all? They, I mean, they play her up as attractive, and mm-hmm. but it's mostly about her virtue. They try to, the press sure. plays up her virtue and all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, no, we, I don't know. Um, 
you know, I mean, she's a, you know, young, uh, mm-hmm. we're going to get into her background, sure. but, um, you know, suffice to say she's, she's well off, you know, solidly middle-class, um, okay. you know, very young white girl in this, in this Chinese immigrants room. So she turns up in a trunk in mm-hmm. Lee Ling's room. He's mm-hmm. gone. Another Leon, guy. Yes. Another yeah. guy is gone too, though. Correct. From what? His his roommate, but not the roommate. Just from across. Yeah, his he's, roommate. His roommate. They have a, they have adjoining to, rooms. So they're they're, they're partners in crime, and they're in they're on the lamb right now. Maybe she's in she's in she's in the ba- she's in the box. Right. Very much so. And yeah. it's clearly going to gain sensation, just like it does today with any young, beautiful girl who goes missing or whatever. You know, they always get the headlines. Um. So sure, I I mean it's it's interesting to see um, what this guy Leon's um, story is going to be. Okay, so here's the now. Thing. Is there oh. anything? So what is the? I'm assuming the police at this point in 1909. Yes, there's zero, absolutely zero technology. Well, no, so, no, 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 um, no. The police by 1909 um, have some. Flashlights. No, what we would call some modern techniques. Um, the uh, Have you ever heard of H.H. H. Holmes? Yes. Okay. So he's America's first serial killer. And when he is captured, um, the process of tracking him down and capturing him is a real kind of um, on-the-ground learning experience for police in the United States. So there's a real professionalization that takes place in the aftermath of H.H. H. Holmes. And Holmes is sure. his murders occur um about off the top of my head, about 15 years or so earlier, 1892, 1893, um, is his his heyday. So there is a kind of professionalization that that has that has occurred throughout of course. police stations of course. by 1909. Uh, but but yeah, as far as technology, I'm not referring to techniques. Yeah, I mean they have zero technology. They have telegrams so, so that they can communicate pretty instantly across the country. Right. You know, so that's yeah. yeah. There's no fingerprint analysis. Well, fingerprinting exists, but I'm not sure how useful it was yet. Okay. There's no video. There's no video. Film, no, no video. Uh, security no. cameras. No. There's no, no. no key cards. There's nothing like that. So, really. At the end of the day, you're looking at this guy, Lee Ling, is on the run for one of two reasons. Oh, I'm sorry, Leon. Well, Lee, I'm calling him Lee for short. No, call him so Leon. Lee Ling is on the run for sure for two reasons, right? And and I don't have to be a professional detective in 1909 to figure this. One, sure, he killed this broad and stuffed her in a box and went on the run. Took his roommate. They had a party one night. They were doing you know wild stuff and got a little out of hand and. One thing led to another. We've all seen that movie, and she's <laughs> she ends she's and she ends up in a box, right? Okay. So, and then they get they get freaked out and they take off. That's one scenario. Scenario number two: these poor bastards are innocent and they come home or whatever, and they just happen to find a dead body in the room, and they both say, "Well, obviously we're getting pinned for this because there's no te- video cameras to prove anything sure. that we didn't do it." So we're we're taking off, we're high talent, we're going on the lamb. So either way, if I was them two, I'd stay the hell on the lamb because when you come back, the police are not going to listen to your story. Um, so so the, what I what I'm interested to see now is how quite how much uh, coverage this gains in 1909 and how much of a manhunt this is in 1909. We're going to cover all that.
So let's do it. Let me start by saying, though, to be honest, uh, in 1909 in the United States, um, there were plenty of unsolved lurid deaths. Mm-hmm. For example, the same day that Siegel's death was reported, the New York Herald also reported several mysterious deaths, including a double poisoning of a man and a woman. A world headline from July 4th, 1909 announced, quote, 112 unsolved murders in Manhattan and the Bronx alone since January 1st, 1906. So, end quote. So, again, why this story? Why did the focus, and here's, here's the, I'm sorry, this is a really important part. Why does the focus ultimately shift to Chinatown specifically? After all, the body was found in Midtown, some six miles away from Chinatown. So we'll see the story really revolves around Chinatown. And I think that's kind of interesting because the murder doesn't take place there. Elsie Siegel was from Washington Heights, the rather Tony neighborhood more than twice as far away than Midtown, right? I mean, so I think um, Washington Heights is about 13 or 14 miles from Chinatown. So this guy's apartment is in Manhattan. Is in Midtown. Is in Midtown. Chinatown is where where this guy, uh, Sum Young, owns a chop suey shop. No, no, no. So far, everything we've done has been in Midtown. Okay. It's all in Midtown. Yeah. The chop suey restaurant is downstairs, is like the first floor, and then Leon Ling lives lives in a fourth floor apartment above it. I got you. Got it. In Midtown. Um, Chinatown is down in the sixth ward by the Bowery. And right down the street from five points, not, yep. not far from five points. Okay. All right. Here's the thing. The story ultimately becomes known as, quote, the Chinatown trunk mystery, end quote. So we've got to talk about what this story meant to the people of that time. And we'll deal with sort of how Chinatown becomes the center of the story, even though it really wasn't, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Turn of the 20th century New York was a rapidly transforming space, right? From the explosion of industrialization as evidenced by the rapidly expanding subway system and the construction of immense skyscrapers like the Flatiron Building was built and the MetLife Tower, which was the tallest in the world when it opened in 1909, Mm -hmm. to the average of 1,900 immigrants passing through Ellis Island every day between 1900 and 1914 including 1.25 million in 1907 alone. By 1909, New York was a city full of people. I want to start with a way too brief rundown rundown of anti-Chinese policies in the United States. The very first kind of uh, law dealing with uh, Chinese immigrants specifically was uh, something called the Anti-Cooley Act, which was signed by Abraham Lincoln in 1862. Mm -hmm. The law sought to restrict the importation of coolie laborers. Coolies were a kind of indentured servant. Okay. Chinese immigrant labor was essential for constructing the Transcontinental Railroad, which began in 1863. And slavery-like conditions persisted uh, for them, despite not being coolies. And when the railroad was completed in 1869, the Chinese immigrants who had built the railroad from the West uh, were discouraged from settling in the United States permanently. People were happy that they were around to do the labor, but once sure. the railroad was built, they were like, okay, you guys can yep. leave now. <laughs> um, but of course, by then, you know, it's like people had lived here for five, six, seven years. Um, so it's like, I don't want to leave. This is my home. Suffice to say, Chinese laborers were treated with extreme hostility, especially when they found economic success, which some of them did. No money, no problems. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
whites often restricted their access to businesses. Mm -hmm. This, of course, provided Chinese immigrants an opportunity to open their own businesses without any such restrictions. Sometimes this meant meant gambling houses, brothels, and opium joints, but it also meant laundry services and restaurants and other merchant shops. This also led to published accounts of quote-unquote Chinatowns being created throughout the country. In New York, a significant majority of Chinese immigrants lived and worked outside of Chinatown. According to the 1880 census, for example, of the 587 Chinese residents in New York City, 117 lived in the Sixth Ward, which includes Chinatown and Five Points. Now, that was the most residents of any one particular ward, but 117 out of 587 is nowhere close to a majority. Okay. So, nevertheless, Chinatown became a kind of useful shorthand for vice and danger, especially for white women in the press and among journalists and whatnot. I want to note, too, that that 587 figure might be an undercount because two years later, by 1882, there were about 2,000 Chinese residents in New York City. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty big jump in just two years. Um, But it's hard to know. You know, people move. Counts are a little imprecise, so it's hard to know exactly. By comparison, though, uh, in 1875, the state had uh, counted 157 Chinese in the city. So again, in 1875, there were 157. By 1880, they think there are 587. By 1882, 2,000. So it's a pretty rapid growth, Mm -hmm. regardless of how you look at it. Anyway, in 1868, the U.S. Senate ratified something called the Burlingame Treaty, which removed all immigration restrictions between the Qing Dynasty and the United States. Just a few years later, in 1875, with the Transcontinental Railroad complete, the U.S. passed something called the Page Act, which was worded in such a way as to exclude Chinese prostitutes from immigrating. But what it did was it essentially banned all Chinese women from immigrating to the United States. So any Chinese woman coming over was essentially treated as a prostitute and turned away. Right. Whether she was a wife or whatever, it didn't matter. So I want to be clear, you know, the prostitution was exceedingly common among basically all nationalities in the Western states. I mean, this is the end of the kind of Wild West. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, you know, every Western novel and movie has at least one brothel and a Miss Kitty and sure. whatever, right? So we know that this is not just like a Chinese issue. So banning Chinese prostitutes was a performative act, right, to try and couch a kind of racist immigration policy in what they at the time considered sort of moral term. Anyway. In 1882, Congress passed uh, what I believe to be maybe the most reprehensible bill in our very sordid history of passing reprehensible bills. It was called the Chinese Exclusion Act. This act forbid all Chinese men from immigrating to the United States. That's it. The only people who were allowed here were like diplomats, um, maybe some students, that sort of thing. Um, But it, it targeted a specific ethnic group and a specific sex and outlawed them from immigrating. We've never had an immigration policy of any kind ever before or since that was like that, that targeted one ethnic group and said, no, this group can't come in. We've never had anything quite like that ever before or since, because it's, you know, it's obviously discriminatory, right? Well, I don't think anyone gave a shit about discrimination or anything like that back then, did they? Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, obviously not. They passed it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, but it, it is you know, still a problem. <laughs> sure. It's it's still a problem. It's still a problem. Because we didn't do to it with us, any other yeah. country. <laughs> to us, yes. Today, yes. Well, it was a pro- it was a problem for a lot of people then too, but but yes. But then 
I mean, I mean, I'm sure it was a problem to a bunch of Chinese people. Sure, but there there had to be a reason, and it had to be because there was their Chinese population was growing too fast, and they were becoming too successful. This is the bigger problem at the time, and starting to own maybe too many businesses. This is the bigger problem that Chinese Chinese people were becoming too successful in Western states, especially yes. California. And so, so that was, yes, that is what drove this was that it wasn't that the Chinese population was growing so large, so fast that that was true of all immigrant populations mm-hmm. at the time. But they, you know, I mean, this yeah, was, yeah, yeah, no, I get it. Yep. You know, they didn't do, they didn't pass an Italian exclusion act, despite the fact that there were like 10 times more Italians coming in than there well, were Chinese. As we're saying this story, like I'm thinking like each ethnic group had their own towns, like they had Chinatown, they had little Italy they had, you know, Greek town, they had all like everyone had their own little conclaves. Right. And sort of the Italians, sort of. you know, the Italians were were obviously third rate citizens for a very long time. You know, Irish had problems as well. This is an example of how the Chinese had their issues. Sure. You know, I, I think it, especially at that time, at the turn of the century, um, there was a lot of uh, un, there was a lot of growth and. Um, there was probably the government didn't quite know how to handle the growth and the results of that. And what you see here when you look back in time is a lot of probably bad policy, bad decisions sure. that were made in in reaction to what we would think today of completely ridiculous. Xenophobia. Kind of, um, yeah. Look, here's my thing. None of this would have happened if, if honestly – the, the majority of people didn't support a lot of this. Unfortunately, they did. Sure. And it's, a, it's one of those things where we have to be honest and say, look, it was just a, a, a much different time. And, and I, I just don't think people gave a shit about Chinese I, people. I, under, I understand Honestly. that. That's not the point. The point is, it was a racist and xenophobic law. And Correct. <laughs> then, not quite. No, then too. Because... Because we're talking about people. Technically, no, sure. No, because we're talking about people. But the hold society, on, hold on. We're talking society about people have thought who that. at the same time thought that, you know, uh, that like anti-Semitism ran wild. But they did not say, we're not going to allow any Jewish people in. Anti-Italian sentiment ran wild. But they did not prevent all Italian people from coming in, right? So it what is unique about this, there were restrictions because of because of xenophobia. Eventually, by 1914, restrictions are put in place to limit the number of immigrants coming from Southern and Eastern Europe because there is this like um, white Anglo-Saxon fear of being overrun by these dirty Southern Italian, these Southern Europeans and Eastern Europeans. However, there is no other law in the history of this country that specifically targeted one group and said those people from that country are not allowed in. That is what's unique. The point is that that is unique. Of of all of mm-hmm. the that that um that racist ass people in the past had with immigrants of various stripes, never before or since have we ever said, okay, we're not allowing this group in. That's the only time. That's all. The the only point I'm trying to make is this is the only time in our history. Well, as for. Yeah, of course, because, you know, our country is based off of a mixing pot and a melting pot and immigration. That's what 
that's what our country is. So it, it would be odd to say that anyone couldn't come in to very unique law. I never knew it existed. It is a unique law. And that is the only point I'm trying to make is that the way the Chinese are dealt with is unique. Anyway, different groups had their own communities. But I'm going to talk about that because that is not as true as we think it is. Um, and so we're, we're going to do it. We'll, we'll, you'll see. You'll see what I mean. All right. I mean, to the day, it's, to the day it's still true. It becomes true. And we're going to look at Chinatown to see how it becomes true of Chinatown. Anyway, back to 1882 and the Chinese Exclusion Act. Well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question here. What was the relationship at, in 1882 between mm-hmm. China and, and, us? and us? There was a, a mad dash to carve up China into um, for trading. Like there were, uh, meaning like, like for example, today they're they're communists. Today they're there. We can still go there and all. We everyone goes there and we do vacations there and do everything else. But they're obviously not friendly with us. And eh, I mean, we get all our stuff from them. We do, and and they're one of our biggest competitors right now economically. Sure, they are. Yes, absolutely. number one, they're going to probably pass us in a, in so many years. But yeah, which is which is why when we when when we say things like they're not friendly with us, but, what is more accurate to say is. We don't like that they're competing, that they are competitive. Well, we don't like, hold on. We don't like that they're competitive enough that they don't have to do what we tell them. That's true. Right. But, but let's be fair. Let's be fair. Hold, hold on. All hold right. on. All right. And I know I'm not saying we're innocent. Yeah, for sure. But it, it's not, it's, they're not the victims here. Okay. So it's what I'm victims. saying here is, well, in this story, they are. So yes. let's say like, like, we went there to their country in 1882. Would that be allowed? Are they friendly in this time sure. frame? No, absolutely. Was their travel um, going back and forth? Yes. And why are so many coming to America? Is it because it's just so poor in China at the time? There's no, obviously like today you can't, you know, it was the government the same. What's it look like? So no, there's no the government's nothing. No. I mean, the, 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 the communist party doesn't come into power until well after world war two. Um, they will fight a, a civil war throughout uh, throughout World War II. Actually, earlier than that, once Japan invades, but that's that's m- coming later. Uh, in 1882, China is still under the, the Qing Dynasty, but it is a very very weak uh, dynasty. is collapsing. Are they brutalizing people? And no, it's quite the opposite. There, the thing about China is. Um, that Europe has essentially carved China up by 1882 okay. into um, into like trading spaces. Now, the United States tries to get involved with something called the, that's part of what the Burlingame Treaty is. Um, but we get involved in with uh, trying to open up China to trade because we're a little late to the game. We were fighting a civil war while Europe was carving up China for trade, and we're going to talk a bit about that trade uh, here in a bit. Okay. But um, we're a little late to the game because we're fighting a civil war, and so we're not like. We're not trying to trade with them for a, a little while there. And then we're reconstructing. So we're not real. We're not trying to trade with them until after all that is sort of done. By 1882, we want to trade with China very much. It is a huge market. Uh, and they make things that we really like, like silk and porcelain. Mm-hmm. However, um, we're, we have been, <laughs> we are negotiating trying to, um, trying to get them to open up to, um, to sort of quote unquote free trade with us. Um, while Europe has carved out kind of certain ports that they all trade, all the European powers are trading in 
kind of exclusively or with like a favored nation status in different ports and things like that. Okay. So you know, we're very interested in, chi- in having China trade with China. We just decide we, we don't want Chinese people moving here. We have no problem moving P- uh, Americans over to China. Not, just not too many so, that are going to be too, too successful. Ultimately, yeah, there is a fear that by 1882, there's this sort of fear that the frontier, quote unquote, is sort of uh, closing and we're running out of free real estate. And so there are, there, there are a lot of policies kind of based on this idea that, oh no, what are we going to do with this expanding population? Okay. So, um, and, and it, it in the time just just you know it's a government run by pretty much all white men. Oh, we yeah, of course. Old, old white men, old white politics, old old men club type stuff. Sure. And they're trying to preserve what they would think is you know their heritage. Like they want to preserve so that their grandkids still have a dominance in their land. Is their mindset? Well, okay. So by eighteen eighty two. A couple things have happened. One is uh, the last uh, African Americans serving in Congress and the Senate have been have been defeated in elections in the South, and a lot of the Southern politicians who have come back into uh, power are planters or are like the the kids of planters from the Civil War. So there's this period from 1865 to 1877 where African Americans in the South actually get elected and are serving in Congress. But they are largely booted out through terrorism. And they're probably, just to be clear, they're elected in probably mostly mostly other African-American communities area. Sure, of course. Right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So where they have to have representation almost. I mean, they didn't before the Civil War. So we're right, about, but, but now know, they do. That's why they're being elected. It's not like they're being elected because they're being accepted in politics and into the club necessarily. Yeah, but they are accepted in politics, and there's and actually there's a lot of important legislation that that goes through. But okay, okay. The, I, this is a whole other story. I don't want to just derail you. Go ahead. For the, like sh- to try and to try and like bullet point this by 1882, the South has completely removed African Americans from office. They have implemented um, full-scale Jim. They're they're in the process of implementing what is becoming Jim Crow segregation. They are uh, implementing things like poll taxes and grandfather clauses in various states to prevent African Americans from voting. So so you have this kind of return to power from white of white Confederates in the South. And so yes, there is a balance of power shift that takes place in Congress to be sure. Where yeah, you have a kind of a white supremacist, like former Confederates, once again becoming the political power brokers. So that shouldn't be discounted as part of how this all happens when it happens. That there is this this shift that is happening at that moment regarding racial policies in the United States that also then is reflected in things like the Chinese Exclusion Act. They are not, these things are not happening in a vacuum from each other. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Right, right. Sure. All right, so to get back to where we're, you know, but again, that's a that's a that's a whole other. Story. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so I promise one day we'll do uh, we'll do a story about like um, the Kennedy assassination. I was thinking we do something like we could talk about like the rise of the first Klan, something like the Colfax massacre or something oh. like that. Um, we'll do sort of white vigilante white, white vigilante violence or something. Oh, good old fashioned white vigilante violence. Yeah, something. I mean, something like that would be would be. There's certainly old white vigilante violence, not like new psycho white people that right shoot up 
Yes. Crowds of people. And Correct. Something, something. Like, I don't like that. Yeah, stuff. no. I, I want old, the old stuff, you know, the good stuff. Well, I mean, yes. I wouldn't call it the good stuff, but I know what you mean. Yes. <laughs> the, the stuff that is far enough into the past that we can talk about it and laugh at the, uh, the idiocy of it all. Uh, as as yeah. opposed to like that happened 15 years ago and that feels a little too close to home. Yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, back to the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. It it remains the only time in uh, that the United States ever specifically excluded one national group of immigrants. And when it passed in 1882, it was meant to stand for 10 years, but it was renewed and strengthened actually in 1892, and then it was made permanent in 1902. And it remained in effect until 1943 when Congress voted to allow 105 Chinese immigrants per year. Okay. Um, okay. That, which is, you know, nothing. I don't, I don't know what that, what that is to the, any other population coming in. How much? It's 105? 105? 105 per year. Yeah. It's nothing. It's not only it, it was a, to, it was a token. You know, I was going to ask you that. What is, what are the mechanisms with China behind the scenes? Because if we are in relations with them, we want to trade with them, right? And we're instituting these types of laws. Are they saying, um, yeah, we want you to, is there like a deal where they're saying, well, we, we don't want to no. lose any more of our citizens, please put these laws in place and we will enter into some agreement with you. No, there is and a, how do you know that before you say no, how do you know that? Because, sure because, chi- because okay, that so chi- China had by this time, China had been devastated by uh, European policies and wars, some of which we're going to talk about here in this. Um, and they were extremely weak. So they really were in no position to, um, they were in no position to sort of make a, a diplomatic stink about these things. The Qing dynasty was at the end of its rope. They were a failing, it was a failing state and they were being looted. You know, they're basically being looted blind by uh, European powers. And so by the time we did this, it, it, it it really doesn't matter what they say diplomatically. They have no power to enforce anything. Yeah, China was weak. I mean, by this time, China had been had been looted and and had been sort of was being bled dry on any number of fronts. I you see. That's that's what I, that's what sticks out in my mind is if I'm thinking like the leaders of China, I'm thinking we're losing everything. We need labor. We need people. Uh, Chinese immigrants went all over through Southeast Asia. They went to India. They went all over because, again, you have a failing state. And when you have a failing state, they're not looking for more labor or anything like that. They're like, hey, you guys want to go and it's fewer mouths for us to try and figure out how to feed. That's fine. Like, that is great. Okay. So anyway, um, so just to, to wrap that up, it, it, this was – the Chinese Exclusion Act is one of the sort of most shameful laws that our country's ever passed. And, and this is well sort of acknowledged today. It was, it was essentially a fascist law. Um, and it should go without saying that these laws also curtailed the freedoms of Chinese immigrants that lived in the United States. Mm-hmm. So as if the Chinese Exclusion Act wasn't bad enough, in 1888, the United States passed something called the Scott Act which forbid any Chinese immigrants who lived in the United States from returning to the U.S. if they left the country for any reason. Now, this included people who had specifically obtained passes that allowed them to return to their homes in the U.S. So people who got passes from the State Department to leave, to visit, say, family or whatever, Mm -hmm. this law was passed 
and then they weren't allowed back into their homes, to their property, to their stuff. What was the what was the what was the rationale behind it? I don't know, steal their stuff, I guess. The the rationale was let's prevent if if they're going to be here, let's make it as miserable as possible. We don't really want them here. How can we force them to leave? If we make it really miserable, they'll leave and then we can't we won't let them back in. I got it. Right. So some 20 to 30,000 people were stranded overseas as a result, and their property was seized um, by the state. So stolen is a much better word. A series of Supreme Court cases actually challenged aspects of these laws. How prevalent? Let me ask you a quick question right here. Sure. In this year, 1888, how prevalent was traveling back and forth from China to here? Fairly common. You have steamships. So so, uh, so from California in particular, you know, you, you travel... From California to China is no different than from you know you, from England to New York. So you um, do you know how many people were applying for uh, whatever visas back then? I don't know what they called them back then, but to for entry into from China. Yeah, they you said before they were going again. You were allowed 150 earlier. Do you know how many were trying to get? Nobody was allowed to immigrate in. At this point, right? 1882. At this point. Chinese exclusion. Well, how many at this point wanted to? Do you know? Do you know how many? I don't. You know, prior to them blocking it off, we're trying to get come in. I, I, I like honestly, I know. I, I don't have the numbers. I can only look okay. at New York, where uh, the numbers do keep growing in New York. There are ways, kind of around the law, um, especially like I said, diplomats and students could come in. Um, and in New York, you you actually see Chinese population grow a bit. Um, which of course would have been a much more difficult journey to go from China to New York is uh, quite the quite the journey right. from China to California is is you know pretty easy, um, but you really have to work to try it. You really have to want it to get from China to New York. Easy, I don't know. That that still seems like a hell of a a voyage. No, from from Ch- from China to California is about the same as going from from Europe to New York. It's about the same distance, you know, across the Pacific. So, yeah, by by steamship. So it's pretty easy in relatively speaking. It's yes, sure. I mean, I know the immigrant journey from like, you know, for like Italians and stuff coming over was miserable. But I mean, relatively speaking, it was not, it was manageable. It was doable. Lots of people, you know, one, you know, over a million people a year did it. So it wasn't impossible. It might've been a miserable journey. Right. But it was manageable. So for people from China to California was the same thing. And California saw a huge spike in Chinese immigration during the gold rush. Yeah. That was really when Chinese immigrants first started coming in any sort of large numbers. And then after the gold rush, you have, uh, they hit the, the Comstock load in, in, um, in Nevada. You know, you have, uh, like the Carson City silver strike. So there are all these, uh, there's gold in, in Colorado. There's gold they find in, in Deadwood, South Dakota. So the same things that motivate immigrants to try and go find gold in the Yukon or whatever, or gold in, in Deadwood, South Dakota, or to try and find gold in Colorado, the same, you know, it's the same incentives for Chinese immigrants. I mean, they're looking for the same opportunities that everyone is looking for, right? For poor, you know, poor working class people mm-hmm. looking for an opportunity to strike it rich. Of course, you know, of course. lots of people are going to try that. If if that's a better if that's a better prospect yep. than you know uh, than yep. than farming or whatever so you know anyway so yeah so this is not like it's but again 
Chinese immigration to the West is much the same as European immigration to the East. Um, the biggest the biggest surprise is how many Chinese people end up in like New York because that's a very difficult journey. You're right. Comparatively speaking, because it's through the Suez Canal. It's around. It's down south around India, up through the Suez Canal, through the Mediterranean, and then across the Atlantic. I mean, that's that's a okay. hell of a journey. Wow. And so. You know, when you look at when you start looking at the Chinese population going from something like 587 to 2000 in two years, I mean, that's remarkable. Even if that even if those numbers like that 587 number is an mm-hmm. undercount, it's not an undercount by half. You know what I mean? It's it might be an undercount. It might be more like 700 or 800, but it's not like, oh, they counted 587 when it's really 1500. You know what I mean? They wouldn't have undercounted by that. They might have undercounted, but not right. Not that bad. Um, anyway, okay. So when the Scott Act is passed, some 20 to 30,000 people end up stranded overseas, uh, as a result. And there's a series of Supreme Court cases that would challenge aspects of these laws in the years that followed. So we're going to real quick rundown of a few of these. Okay. Um, part of the reason I included this is because I want you to understand that like Chinese immigrants in the United States, the fact that they were challenging cases all the way to the Supreme Court tells you that they expected that they should have some degree of constitutional protection in this country. And I think that's telling, you know what I mean? That, that people still thought they would have redress to the courts. They still had an expectation for some sort of, sure, you know, fair treatment under law, which I think says a lot it says it actually says a lot about the United States, about the, the sure. idea of the U S anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think it says a lot about a lot of things. A lot of people took it seriously when we called ourselves a kind of, you know, beacon of freedom and a land of opportunity and all that, that people thought that that was real, that 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 meant. And it is absolutely. And this I think what happens is it, it proves that it is. Well, and what, what, what we have here is you have a, 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 a core of of goodness, which is what you just said. It is it is a truly a great country. But when you add human beings to that mix, right? So when you add human nature to the mix, when you add different, when it's, it's a conceptually, it's a wonderful country. And they did a beautiful job constructing that document. But what they didn't take into account is a lot of what the human being of, of us do to each other. And that is what we've worked through, I believe, since the civil rights era, through the last 50 years as humans, we've developed a better understanding of what's right and wrong. Sure. I mean, Abu Ghraib shows what, where we've really come a long way. Well, obviously (laughs) are still humans. I didn't say we've all of a sudden started walking on water. No, right. I didn't say we've, 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 we're absent sin now. I didn't say anything about that. We, but think about this for a second. Let me think, let me, let me, let me, let me say this. I was talking to someone the other day. And I said, listen to this. Think about think about where we've come as a country. It was a black guy. I said, you know, think about in the 60s as a black person. You literally had to worry about because of the color of your skin, not being able to get a house, a job. They were still hanging people. The Ku Klux Klan was out in the south, still killing and murdering back then. And the police, some of them, police forces were controlled by the Klan in the south. Meaning they, you know, would do anything. People were getting murdered for, for looking at white women. You know, it was a crazy, crazy, crazy country. 
And I said, today, me and him, if we both went out for jobs, we priced 100 jobs and we were the only two applicants. And, you know, we, you know, everything was the same suit wise, you know, everything we didn't, one of us didn't go in looking like a you know a drunk, you know what I mean? We both looked respectable, spoke respectfully and, and asked good questions, all that stuff. We'd probably split them 50, 50, you know, and in today's world, when you hear like racism and stuff, it's not like in the sixties where you'll actually see someone getting murdered and killed today. It's uh, you know, I disagree with your opinion on, on this. So you're a racist or, you know, I don't like the way you said that word. So you're a racist. And it's like, that's really a lot of growth. That's 50 years of a lot of blood, sweat and tears, especially from people like Dr. King. But we've come a very long way. And it's from the basis of structure of goodness, which is in that document. But we've had to come a long way to beat down a lot of different human nature differences that you always get when you mix different people of different backgrounds and different cultures in one area. It happens, you know, if you want to go down to a little microcosm, it happens in prisons all the time. I think as a country, that document's wonderful. I think we've grown. And, you know, today is just a completely different world for everybody. I think it's a safer world, except for these crazy people killing kids. That's the only thing that I... The Constitution should have been thrown out and rewritten a dozen times by now, but uh, like every other country on this planet does. Um, but that's neither here nor there. The left would have loved to have done that. I mean, not just the left. I mean, that's how normal countries operate. Most countries throw out their constitutions and rewrite them in order to keep up with the times. We have, They don't have great ones like ours. That's, that's silly. Okay, so... Back to the story. Back to the story, because this is a, that is a story for another. That is itself a, whew, a, a lot to take in uh, that I just just can't uh, can't can't address all of it right now. Um, <laughs> I have I, I will just I will just have to keep sharing stories of the past and uh, and you know and, that's all you got is stories of the past because it is it is the past it's a. I could do in the past. I could do but, stories of the present, but they're not as uh, it's it's a lot harder to do stories of the present because you you need a little bit of perspective, I think, sometimes to see things. Uh-huh. So you know, we could do some stories of the past. We we could do maybe I'll do a story on the Iraq War, the first Iraq War, uh, and uh, and and how that all came about. Um, that would be a fun one. Okay, <laughs> maybe maybe we could do that uh, and and see right, see how right. how see whether we. We continue to be a force for good in the world in your mind. We're still a flawed country. Still a flawed yeah, country. Yeah, we're okay. So okay. So like I said, I mean, I do think that the promise of the United States is a good promise. I damn right. And I think I do think that that is um worth noting here for a guy who is generally pointing out like bad stuff that happens. Uh, I do want to point out that I think that the promise of the Declaration of Independence is a Good promise. Uh, right. okay. That said, the a couple of these cases I just want to run down. Uh, in the case of Che Chen Che Chang Ping versus the United States in 1889, the court decided, Supreme Court decided, that the United States could prevent the re-entry into the country by a Chinese immigrant who left the country with a valid pass for re-entry before the new law was passed. So that was the case where this guy Che Ching Che Chang Ping said, hey, I left the country to visit my family. Mm -hmm. Before I left, I went to the State Department. I got this pass. 
that said I was allowed to return. You guys passed this law while I was gone. All my stuff is here. Like everything I own is here. And you're not letting me come back in. Nope. Now all your stuff is our stuff. Reappropriate. And the Supreme Court said, sorry, buddy, pass or no pass. It's it doesn't matter. In 1895, Lem Moon Singh versus the United States, the court upheld the right to deny habeas corpus to foreigners trying to enter the country. So they decided that you you weren't allowed to be you were allowed to be arrested for no reason, just for the the act of entering the country. And again, we're talking about a guy who like who lived here was trying to return was arrested in 1905, the United States versus Jew toy. The Supreme Court ruled that habeas corpus could be denied even to U.S. citizens of Chinese descent. So I want to say that again. Oh, now they're really getting hardcore. Even a United States citizen of Chinese descent was barred reentry into the country. Damn. This case basically allowed an ad- immigration administrator, that is, you know, somebody at the ports, like in the, you know, when you come through sure. borders and border and customs, sure. could decide whether or not someone was a citizen, regardless of the facts. So Toy was a citizen. He committed no crime. <laughs> he had been born in the United States, Sorry. but he was deported to China nonetheless because the immigration officer decided that he was not an American, not a citizen. Yep. And when he went to the Supreme Court with proof of his citizenship, they said, too bad, does not matter. The immigration officer is allowed to make that decision. You should have never been given the opportunity to show your proof of citizenship. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. So in 1917, Congress went even further and they denied immigration petitioners from even having judicial review. So as of 1917, Congress decided that Chinese immigrants were not even allowed to challenge their cases in court. So right. if someone tried to challenge their immigration status or whatever, with their citizenship status, they, you know, up until then, even though the Supreme Court ruled against this last guy, if you say had your documents in hand, sure. Jew Toy did not have his citizenship documents. He had, right. he, you know, right. because again, it was a different time. You didn't carry your passport necessarily, whatever. He, so he didn't have it, but he could prove that he was a citizen once given the opportunity. By 1917, Congress goes and says, even if you have your documents with you, if an immigration officer decides that you're not a citizen, he has the power. Regardless of he has the power to rule you not a citizen any longer. Unreal. So, so a person's citizenship now could be determined by some random immigration officer and was not allowed to be challenged in court, giving them obviously unbelievable power. Sure. Over. over sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so again. This is like a hundred years ago. Okay. So yeah. this is not that long ago. I mean, it's not in the grand scheme of things, not that long ago. So I want you to keep all of that in mind as we start to talk about the Siegel murder in 1909, <laughs> which occurs in the midst of all of this stuff going on. Right. I love it. And Mike, that's where we'll leave it for tonight. I think that was perfect. All right. On that note, I have got to hit the hay. All right, buddy. Good night.